everybody, and welcome to episode number 30 of Glass City Game Time, one of America's great sports podcasts brought to you by The Blade. My name is Corey Crisson, and thanks for listening once again. We always appreciate you checking us out, whether you do so on ToledoBlade.com, on Blade News Slide, or one of the major podcasting channels that you can find us. This week, we are talking the Last Dance documentary. And for those of you that have not seen it quite yet, it's essentially a chronicle of the Michael Jordan era Bulls and the time from he got drafted to the time that they broke up in the late 90s after six championships, two three-peats, and part of the first three-peat that Michael Jordan experienced Some of you around here know it all too well. It's the Bad Boys Pistons from the late 80s and the early 90s. And joining me to talk about the documentary and much more is a Delta native who is a reporter for Fox Sports Detroit. It is Johnny Kane. Now, Johnny hosts a podcast called Let It Fly with co-host Langston Galloway, a current NBA player. And on his first two episodes, he got to talk with Isaiah Thomas, of course, the greatest Piston of all time. And he got to talk with John Sally, who not only was a bad boy himself, but also got to play with Michael Jordan and won a championship with Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant, for that matter, later on in his career. And Johnny shares some of the highlights around the conversations he had with Isaiah and with John. And also he talks about the day the sports world kind of halted with the coronavirus pandemic. On March 7th, the Utah Jazz played the Detroit Pistons. And then a few days later, we all learned that Jazz center Rudy Gobert tested positive for the coronavirus. So in effect, Johnny was exposed to someone with the coronavirus. And later we found out that Pistons forward Christian Wood was diagnosed and tested positive for the coronavirus as well. So Johnny shares kind of his experience around the sports world coming to a halt and what the inside look at the Detroit Pistons was when all of this news was breaking out. And at the end, we also talked about his pathway into the sports journalism field. Johnny, again, a Delta native, went to Ohio University, and after a couple of pit stops, he found his way up in Detroit covering the teams that he observed and grew to love as a child. So, Enjoy this conversation, this lengthy conversation. We went long form this week. It's about 45 minutes or so, and I will talk to you at the end of the podcast. Johnny, thanks for taking some time with us. And a lot of what I wanted to talk with you about for the podcast was related to The Last Dance and you on your Let It Fly podcast with Langston Galloway have already talked to two of the members of the Bad Boys and two of the guys that have been there and have had the firsthand uh, Michael Jordan experience, if you will. But before we do any of that, just wanted to check in and ask how everybody's doing. Is everybody staying safe? How have you kind of handled this whole coronavirus situation? Yeah, well, I appreciate it, man. I I really do. Um, Look, I think we're all going through it. Uh, in our own individual ways, uh, although collectively we're all going through it. I've been here, I live in Royal Oak, which is just north of Detroit. Uh, I live alone, so I don't have a family that's here. So I've been good. I've I've, uh, actually bought uh, this house like in uh, 2018, uh, toward the end of 2018. And so 
there were a lot of projects that I would, had wanted to get done, so I've been trying to take the time uh, and and focus my efforts towards uh, DIY home improvement. So I haven't gone through crazy like I know some people that are just itching to get out. Uh, I try to keep my mind busy with, with those types of things. But, you know, certainly when you're used to, uh, you know, the excitement, the, the pace of, of covering sports for a living, and once that's pulled out from underneath, uh, it is tough to make that adjustment. I mean, to take that same type of passion and energy that you would into your job into your uh, do-it-yourself home improvement is not exactly, uh, you know, doesn't necessarily translate. But uh, but that's how I've tried to do it, keep my mind busy and whatnot. But, uh, but I've been good. Uh, I've been healthy to this point. Uh, I only go out when necessary uh, to like a Home Depot or something like that. But other than that, been uh, learning to cook and and all these other little things that come along the way, and, and uh, I've been holding up okay, and just eager about uh, getting back to work here. Hopefully, before too long. I think we're all chomping at the bit in some ways. At least you're putting your mind and your tools to use. I have my apartment out here in Sylvania. It's a little bit different. You can only do so much yeah. to the, the space that you're renting <laughs> as compared to owning something. But <laughs> I'm uh... rearrange your furniture how many times, you know. You know what? I thought of completely flipping my living room, and even then, I'm like, "No, nah, that's a little, <laughs> little too much." But um, yeah, yeah. I, I've probably played too many video games for anybody's liking. But I guess this is the time to do it <laughs> if I'm going to do it. But yeah, we're definitely all itching to get back to the sports world. You were kind of part of the whole sports world, kind of flipping upside down back in March. On March seventh, the Pistons played the Jazz, and yep. About four days later, Rudy Gobert reportedly test positive. The Jazz Center test positive for the coronavirus. One of the major players in this whole thing with the sports world was quite literally in the same building as you and as the Detroit Pistons before the the reported test. You know, what was that whole experience like to go through? Well, okay, he has this unknown thing and we've been exposed to him and then days later, everything gets kind of shut down. What was that whole experience like? Yeah, I'll be honest with you. You know, I tried to uh, take some notations uh, just because it was a very surreal, um, you know, surreal time. When we played Utah, I think people understood what the coronavirus was for sure, but we didn't, you didn't realize how immediate the threat was. And so we played Utah at home, uh, and then we flew to New York to play the Knicks, and then after that, we were supposed to play Philadelphia. Well, we ended up – New York was already at that time. So this is like you said, you know, March 7th uh, was when we played Utah. The NBA season suspended on March 11th. So between the 7th and the 11th, things rapidly increased. And so we went and played at the Knicks, and everything was still standard operating procedure. I remember I, I interviewed Frank uh, Nilekina after the game. And But we left New York because we knew it was a hot spot to go to Philadelphia early. And otherwise, we were supposed to stay in New York, which we normally would have done, and then, and then headed over to Philly. But as it was, we wanted to get out of uh, the quote-unquote hot spot. So we get to Philadelphia a couple of days early. And again, it was still uh, standard procedure. Uh, our traveling party, I hang out with a couple of uh, my guys on the road. We went out and had uh, dinner the one night, uh, the night before we played. This would have been the tenth. Uh, anyway, we went out, had a nice like Italian dinner, and uh, 
and then went back to the hotel. And the next morning we did our conference call like we would normally do on game day. And, of course, there was thought then at that point on the 11th of there's a, there's a good chance that um, there will be limited attendance tonight. Uh, we knew from a, a model standpoint of reporting that no longer would we have the one-on-one -on -one interviews that I would normally do before a game. Everything was going to be like a press conference type format, social distancing, six feet apart, yada, yada. So anyway, we were all just kind of coming to grips with this new normal. And it was like, okay, you know, we can still do our job. We can still execute a telecast. And so we, I interviewed Coach Casey before the game. Again, press conference format. We were, we were advised we weren't going to be getting like a walk-off interview at halftime like we would normally do. Or after the game, we weren't going to be talking to a player out of uh, what they call the abundance of caution. But by the time the game ended, and we had lost that night in Philly, this is on the 11th, by the time the game ended and by the time Coach had come out for his post-game remarks is when it started being reported that Rudy Gobert had tested positive. So now we're all thinking, yeah, hey, man, we just played Utah four days before. What does this mean? Well, within minutes, I mean, this I'm talking real time. So we're all sitting there gathered in this uh, press conference room, media room, mm -hmm. and literally every few seconds it was like, hey, did you see this? you know, Woj bomb, or did you see this, or did you see who's reporting this, or Sham said this. And before Coach even came out, the NBA declared that the season was being suspended. So you could imagine what that's like when you've got all these reporters sitting around. It's like, wait, what? Like, what does that mean? <laughs> you know, I mean, what, <clears throat> what's happening? And I give a ton of credit to, uh, you know, Commissioner Silver, and, and obviously they were so proactive in this thing, once they had a, a, a positive case that, I mean, it was, they were the first league to actually suspend operation. And so they got out in front of it and we, uh, so we're processing in real time. Okay. NBA season suspended coach ends up coming in. And I remember, uh, so I fired the first question and I say, you know, what's, what's your reaction to all this? And he's processing it, you know, just like we were. He hadn't even addressed his team about it because he had just learned about it as he was coming out to just do his game remarks. So, you know, he didn't have all the answers to everything, but he understood that everything was going to be suspended. And so uh, we ended up meeting with <coughs> – excuse me, sorry about that. We ended up meeting uh, before we had left uh, the arena. We all got together and uh, basically talked about how we were going to handle ourselves moving forward. And even at that time – there were all, we already, uh, some members had already begun wearing masks and uh, some members of our traveling party. And we were advised that because of our connection with Rudy and playing the Utah Jazz, that we were all going to fly back to Detroit from Philadelphia and we were going to self-quarantine for 14 days. The entire traveling party, players, coaches, uh, media that, that were on the, uh, on the flight. And so we understood that. And so that was on the 11th. Like I said, we got back here at, you know, whatever it was, like, you know, 1 in the morning, 1.30 in the morning. And beginning on the 12th, when I woke up that day, I've been home ever since. And so mm -hmm. for the first two weeks was straight quarantine of, you know, no going out, no, you know, it wasn't even, you wouldn't even go grocery shopping or any of that stuff before any of the executive stay-at-home orders. It was just, it was a direct uh, quarantine. But, uh, and then once we had started quarantining, then we had found out that Christian Wood had tested positive. And so we moved our two-week timeline back from not just of when we had faced Utah, 
which would have been the 7th, we moved it back to from the 11th, which was the last time we had interacted with Christian. And, of course, I had interviewed Christian the night we played Utah, and then I interviewed him when we played in New York, and then I interviewed him in uh, – actually, I didn't interview him in Philadelphia because we didn't uh, – we didn't do interviews that night, but the point was I had been in contact with him, not directly touching, but I had been, you know, a foot away from him doing an interview uh, since the time he had interacted with Rudy Gobert and uh, so on and so forth. So anyway, we had pushed our, our mandatory two-week quarantine back from March 11th, and, and then uh, here we are, whatever today's date is. Those first moments when everybody was kind of learning that not just that the season was – getting postponed because that's a, I feel like a whole different thing compared to learning that Rudy Gobert tested positive for the coronavirus and obviously Detroit playing them a few days before you've been in that locker room. You've been around the players and the coaching staff. Was there a sense of maybe confusion or fear or curiosity? What was that vibe like in that locker room once all of this news kind of started to break? Yeah, hard to put into words, man, because, you know, again, it's almost as if, you know, I don't, I don't know how you prepare for it because it was such a, again, like I said, we all knew about what, you know, the coronavirus was, but then all of a sudden when you're seeing, you know, somebody in a mask and then it's, hey, we're, we're quarantining for 14 days and the season is suspended, it's almost as if, I wouldn't say shock, but you're just, it's hard to process. You're just kind of just nodding like, okay, this is a new normal. Uh, how do you process those types of things, which you've never tried to prepare for? You know I mean? It was such a, it was such a unique and it still is. It's such, it's hard to get your mind around it. Uh, and especially going back to, you know, the middle of, of March, early to mid March, you know, now we have so much more understanding of what, you know, what it is and what it's about and how we can help. Uh, protect ourselves but at that particular point in time it was just you're just listening to the doctors and the authorities saying that hey we're going to quarantine so um i think yeah there was a lot of curiosity there were a lot of questions um and i'll say this again about the pistons as an organization uh you know they already had a pretty firm grasp and the fact that you know we on our own accord, decided to self-quarantine. That wasn't mandated by anybody other than we wanted to do it as a precautionary measure. So when I say we, meaning that was, you know, directed by the team. Uh, so they had a good, good understanding of what it was. And so you just, you follow the lead there. You follow the examples that are set forth and, and, uh, and we did. And then obviously over the last several weeks, everybody has come to grips with, you know, exactly what social distancing is and how it can spread and, and so on and so forth. So, uh, yeah, there were a lot of questions, but, you know, we had, uh, you know, we had, uh, we had access to uh, doctors if we had any questions. I mean, there was an open communication line. Any questions, we could talk about it. We would do a daily briefing. Uh, and, and that was able to keep everybody at least informed up to speed uh, as to what's taking place. You know, I mean, uh, it wasn't as if we were just, hey, go home, for, go home for two weeks and then, you know, talk to you later. Uh, you know, we had daily discussions on uh, how everybody was processing. So uh, it, it's just, it's wild, man. It's hard to, uh, it's hard to explain exactly what that moment was like, but it was, you're just trying to come to grips with something that you never truly prepared for. Were you tested? I was not. I was, I had uh, access to a test. 
but in my opinion at that time was you know what we had what we had known at the time was uh you know it could take anywhere let's say you know five to fourteen days or whatever it was to show symptoms and we obviously understand you can be asymptomatic and uh, to me, if I was already going to quarantine for fourteen days, I didn't need the peace of mind to know that I had it or didn't have it because I was acting as though I had it. And so in my mind, and this is not to try to sound uh, one way or another, but I didn't want to take a test for peace of mind if I knew somebody else could actually use the test that needed the test. You know what I mean? And I'm not saying that's the way that the tests were presented. It wasn't like, hey, Johnny, you need it. You're next in line. Do you want to give it to the person behind you? But in my mind, that was the thought process was, I'm not going to, quote, unquote, waste a test on me so I can say, hey, I had it or I didn't. If I was going to be quarantined at my home and no direct contact with another human being for two weeks uh, and I wasn't showing any symptoms, I just figured I'll just assume as though I do have it. And at the end of two weeks, I was, you know, obviously I still social distance and all the other things that are recommended by the CDC. But I, in my mind, uh, I didn't need the test to prove one way or another. I just assumed as though I did have it. And obviously, at some point down the road, once we, you know, we get the antibody testing and all everything else that's going to come out, uh, you know, I'll definitely, uh, if if made available, and, and uh, you know, I'll, I'll try to figure out if I if I really did or not. That's something that people I feel like don't process is, yes, you could get tested for it. Yes, you could get that peace of mind for it. And in some cases, that's the best thing to do. But also, for the time, there weren't that many tests available. And it was kind of, I don't want to say a pecking order, but it was an importance and a priority thing. So big props and big kudos to you for for doing that and for thinking that way. Uh, because I feel like, for me at least, it would be easy to say, well, I was exposed directly to this player who was exposed to this guy who tested positive, so theoretically speaking, I should get it too. Now we're kind of in the stage of some places are starting to open back up, including certain NBA camps, and it was reported that the Cleveland Cavaliers are going to be opening their training facility for players and for coaches to get back in to start workouts. I haven't necessarily read or heard anything on the Pistons following up to do so, but this seems like it's the first step towards the NBA and maybe the NHL follows some suit too for them to kind of resume their seasons here. Do you think there's a timeline that they're trying to work for towards it, or what do you think could happen with all of this? Yeah, it's a good question, and uh, I honestly haven't talking, uh, I haven't spoken with anybody from the organization about that. Uh, but I read the same report. Uh, it's certainly a step in the right direction, and that's a, you know, that's a good thing, uh, no question. And I read the same things as everybody else, and I wish I could say that I have, you know, some direct knowledge, um, but I just don't, because nobody really does. Uh, I know the league, you know, they continue to meet. Uh, and discuss potential options. Uh, if I had a best guess, I would say we're probably looking at July as a launch uh, as a launch date to get back to playing. Uh, what that looks like, we don't know. If that means, let's say, for example, I believe the Pistons have 16 games remaining. Will we play the full 16, uh, knowing that we don't have an opportunity to advance to the playoffs? Uh, likely not, but you would still give those teams that are jockeying for a playoff spot 
an opportunity to play a certain set of games in order to get to a postseason. I think, you know, the idea is that we're not just going to come back and, uh, and just jump right into the playoffs. You're still going to have some type of conclusion to the regular season. Now, it may not be, like I said, a full 82-game slate, which you would normally have. They might condense that, and we might come back and play a handful of games. But to give those teams that we're jacking for position a chance to uh, end it on their own terms and then get into the postseason. You know, I don't know. Uh, to be honest with you, man, I wish I had a, I wish I had a better, uh, better answer for you. Uh, we're all just kind of learning. It's minute to minute. Uh, it's day to day. And uh, what I do know is that there is a commitment by the league, uh, by the players, uh, by ownership and everything to try to resume the suspended season and not just, you know, not just put a cap on it. But uh, we'll see. We'll see how everything moves going forward. Yeah, sometimes the correct answer is no answer. Right now, we really don't. <laughs> we really don't have many of them. So I think all we can do for now is take things as they come and take things as they are. And I know that there are some states that aren't really close to opening quite yet. So just because the Cleveland Cavaliers are opening their facility doesn't mean the Golden State Warriors are doing the same thing, for example. So um, I guess, I guess we'll time will tell and hopefully we get back to some kind of a season, even if it's just starting the playoffs or like you said, if they finish up those final dozen and a half games or so, I think that's a time or tell kind of thing. Johnny, we wanted to talk to you also about the last dance. And while the sports world is on hold, ESPN has put out what is seemingly the television event of the year, whether you're a sports fan or not. And the last dance has chronicled the essential rise and fall of the Chicago Bulls episode six just happened on Sunday. So we're over halfway through this documentary series. It's a 10 episode series and episodes three and four really highlighted how Jordan and the Bulls had this battle with the bad boys at the Detroit Pistons in the late eighties and the early nineties. And on your podcast, your let it fly podcast with Langston Galloway, you got to talk with two of the major players on those bad boys teams, including the greatest Detroit Piston ever and Isaiah Thomas. Obviously, we, we know now this, the full story. Jordan got over the Pistons eventually, and it became this, well, will Jordan ever do it, and how is Jordan going to do it? But speaking out of talking to Isaiah and talking to, you talked to John Sally this past week, can you just share some of their perspectives from what they were going through while Jordan was trying to chase them while they were still kind of the Kings of the Hill. Yeah, look, I think um, when we talk about certain dynasties and again, I grew up, so I grew up in Delta, Ohio, which is not far from you. And mm -hmm. so I grew up during that time frame. Like I had an Isaiah Thomas poster, life-size poster on the back of my bedroom door where he was like dribbling the basketball and holding out, you know, his left hand pointing, like directing traffic. So every night I went to bed, there's Isaiah like pointing in my direction as I, my head hit the pillow. <laughs> uh, but when you, when you grow up at that time frame, so, so when they went back to back championships in 89 and 90, I'm nine and 10 years old. And then, so you're in your formative years of like becoming like a true, you know, at that, at that age as a kid, you know, whatever the, whatever you're watching influences you. So then imagine Jordan, then he goes on from 91 to 94, and then, you know, obviously up through 98 when he does the second three-peat. 
you know, those are the years that I'm like growing up following the game. And so I had this perspective of I I love the Pistons, I love the bad boys. I I wish I still had my old championship T-shirt from uh, the '89 team. But then you couldn't grow up during that time and not appreciate what Michael Jordan had brought to the game. And so to be able to even have somebody like Isaiah or John uh, Sally come on the podcast and talk about it was, you know, for me it was a treat just because these are my guys. But knowing that those guys had played, uh, you know, during what I consider one of the greatest eras uh, of NBA basketball, I just don't feel as though maybe nationally the Detroit Pistons get as much love. Everybody talks about Boston and the Lakers and then Bulls, and we forget that the Pistons won back-to-back championships. Uh, and they were, I mean, they were the top of the heap, and they were a fabulous basketball team uh, until Jordan obviously had taken the reins in 91. Um, I just feel as though that team, I wouldn't say, look, I think the way the documentary kind of paints it was, you know, Jordan had to get past them, you know, in order to take the throne. But, you know, and obviously it was, it's called The Last Dance. It's, it's about Chicago. It's told through that lens. It's not necessarily chronicling the, you know, the bad boys. So it's not as if I, I don't feel as though the bad boys got a, an unfair shake in episodes three and four. But uh, if you look at the scope of the NBA and uh, uh, premium franchises, you know, the Detroit Pistons certainly had their place in, in all of it. And uh, and that really was. They were the last stop that Jordan had to, you know, to uh, endure in order to to become the face of basketball for the next, you know, next decade. But uh, just hearing those guys talk about it, I mean, their brand of basketball, I mean, there's a reason they were called the bad boys. Uh, you know, there was a, there was a link to uh, Al Davis and the Oakland Raiders where they had that tough uh, – they had that tough, you know, a moxie about them. You knew if you were going to play the Pistons, you were going to feel it. Um, and and it was a brand of basketball that worked. They had great athletes. They had great unselfishness as a collective unit. And uh, just talking with Isaiah and John, you know, knowing that, knowing what those guys went through in order to get to the top of the mountain uh, was pretty special. And then the fact that, you know, they obviously have great respect for uh, what Jordan was all about and, and that, those Chicago Bulls teams obviously coming through, but uh, it, it almost was like a baton handoff, you know, where you said you had the bad boys of uh, the late 80s who were dominant, and and then that Chicago team, once Chicago was able to finally beat them in the Eastern Conference Finals in 91, then they never looked back. But they were unable to do that for a stretch of three years. And then eventually once they were able to, then they moved on. But uh, it's just pretty fabulous. It's just cool to – it's cool to get both ends of the of the spectrum. And, like, my mom grew up outside of Chicago, so I mentioned I grew up in northwest Ohio. So I like the Pistons. I also like Jordan and the Bulls. Most people would say you can't. Those two things can't coexist. It's like saying <laughs> I love Ohio State and I also like Michigan. Right? It doesn't work uh, for most people. Uh, and for the record, I don't necessarily like Michigan. But, <laughs> but I did have an appreciation for both the Pistons and the Bulls because of, uh, you know, my connection to both cities. But. Uh, it's been a fabulous documentary, and uh, to be able to get a couple of the original bad boys on to to give their uh, give their take has been cool. Johnny, you got to be careful where you are when you when you like that match. You know that when you like that Ohio <laughs> when you like that Ohio State Michigan match, you got to be careful sometimes. <laughs> yeah, trust me, I know it, man. I know it. 
knowing it all too well, where I'm from, it's Browns and Steelers in the Youngstown area. So depending on where you oh. are, if, if you say you're a Browns fan, you're good. If you say you're a Browns fan, you're not good. So got to be yep. careful in yep. some places. Um, <laughs> no doubt. One of the, I guess, buzz topics that social media was all over after those two episodes where the bad boys were highlighted was the walk-off. And after Jordan and the Bulls finally beat Isaiah in the Pistons, Isaiah Thomas, the team, they walk off the floor without shaking hands with the Bulls. What was Isaiah's, I don't want to say defense towards it because I feel like that's a little harsh and unfair, but what was Isaiah's perspective that he shared with you guys about maybe the reasoning behind the walk-off or maybe just why they did it in general? Yeah, I mean, they took it personally. Um, and, you know, one part that was not in the documentary was the fact that, you know, Jordan had said to the papers that uh, Detroit, you know, were undeserving champions. Uh, and he basically, you know, I'm paraphrasing here, but uh, he kind of painted the city and the franchise in, in not a great light. And so what do we always talk about in sports? What are motivational factors? It's bulletin board material. It's, hey, this guy disrespected me. Uh, this guy, um, you know, thinks we can't beat him. Whatever it is, whatever you need is motivation or an edge. This has been going on, uh, you know, for, for years, for centuries, as far as when you go into something and it's like, okay, what's the chip on my shoulder? What am I going to use as a motivating factor? And so those guys had read what Jordan had said about Detroit uh, during that series that essentially that Detroit were undeserving champions. And so that's, that's where it became palpable. Uh, so when the game was over, it was, hey, we had lost our contest, and that's it. The game is over. We're done. So – you can look at it from uh, multiple ways, and some people would say, you know, hey, it's unsportsmanlike, and you should still shake a hand, and blah, blah, blah. Uh, in the heat of battle, in the heat of the moment, uh, you had an opportunity to say, okay, the game is over, we're out of here. That was just it. And so that was, you know, in essence what the point was, was, uh, you know, I'm not going to go shake your hand after you it just disparaged me and my city um, days prior. Uh, I'm just not going to be a part of that. So I'm, I'm done. You won, move on. Mm -hmm. You also got to talk with John Sally, who has kind of both sides of the coin here, played on the Bad Boys teams and then later on played with Jordan in Chicago. What were some of his perspectives on not just the Bulls eventually beating the Pistons, but also from his experiences playing with Jordan? Yeah, he was good. We had him on this week, and uh, you know, if you ever get a chance to be around John, he's a, a tremendous interview. So is Isaiah. Don't get me wrong, but you know, John is just you know he he doesn't hold back uh, <laughs> on anything. But you know, we just talked about uh, you know the gratitude that he had for playing, and like I said, one of the great eras of of NBA basketball, and the fact you know he wins four championships on three different teams. I mean, how you know could you imagine? saying I was a teammate of Isaiah Thomas, Michael Jordan, and Kobe Bryant, and won rings with all three. You know, I mean, or, uh, he, he's a, excuse me, yeah, he had won the ring with, uh, yeah, the Lakers was his last championship. So mm -hmm. uh, two with the Pistons, one with Chicago, and one with, uh, and one with Kobe. Uh, 
but anyhow, he was just he always he he, uh, he had mentioned about taking the high road, and uh, you know we hear that expression a lot. But it's, you know it was about taking the high road and uh, with every approach to life. And to me, I thought that was it was pretty good. I I, I think I tweeted that a clip of that uh, here this week, but. It was just pretty cool to hear him talk about that. You know, obviously the perspective of being able to play in one of the greatest eras, to play with some of the greatest players and against uh, some of the greatest players, but taking the high road and uh, sometimes the unselfish approach. It's not all about let me get what I can get for me. It was how do I fit into this overall team equation? And we hear that, but maybe we don't hear enough of that, of, of how I feel like, anymore in today's society it's, it's a lot of it is like hey how can i get mine and the essence of team and how i can be a part of something even greater that's beyond me individually uh and how you work toward that so anyway i thought sal was pretty pretty good about that what's been your favorite part of this uh whole series so far you know i like the fact that we all know how this works. It's sort of like even if you're doing a podcast or you're or if you're writing a, uh, a story for the blade or you're doing a podcast, whatever, you can always edit, right? You try to edit, make it look cleaner. Uh, the fact that Jordan had the opportunity to, he could have taken some things out of this docu series that painted him in a negative light, and instead he said, "Just run it." So. Mm-hmm to me was you're not necessarily going out there, you know, this isn't like a political campaign where you're trying to lure votes, uh, you know, and to try to make yourself look as good as possible. Anybody who grew up during the Jordan era knew that, you know, he was, you know, he wasn't flawless. However, part of what made him the alpha alpha is exactly what we're getting, you know, we're starting to see here, you know, and like the fact that they, they brought up the, you know, the little uh, anecdote about gambling and, and, um, uh, you know, fighting with certain teammates or calling out certain people. It's like, well, this is this helps to paint the picture of why he was wired the way he was. And I think that that's been pretty cool. Is, is, again, I, I also understand it's it's basically being told through Jordan's lens, but you're also hearing from uh, other individuals that help paint help paint the picture. But I think it's been fabulous. I, I enjoy it, and uh, it's something I look forward to watching every every Sunday night at nine Eastern. Yeah, I think it's been must-see television thus far, and it's kind of, in a way, sad that we only have four episodes to go and two weeks to go with this. So I'm trying to enjoy this for all it's worth and for all it's been. I, I mm-hmm. thought, I thought this last week's couple episodes, as you said, really helped paint the entire picture of Michael Jordan for the longest time. And you grew up in a different era than I did. I was, I mean, I was born in '92, so. I grew up watching LeBron, you know. I, I know I knew Michael mm-hmm. Jordan as a wizard, and I knew Scottie Pippen as a Portland Trailblazer. So <laughs> right, right. for me, I've always heard about Air Jordan, the sneakers. I've always heard about the dunks, the tongue out, the, the scoring, the closed eyes free throw, all that stuff. And that's all great, and that's all amazing. But there's always that downside to everybody. Everybody has a vice. Everybody has something. And for Jordan to put his gambling issues out there for the public and the end of, I think it was episode six with the Range Rover ride to the stadium with Ahmad Rashad and just the access that first off he had, that's a reporter's dream right there. Um, Oh yeah. (laughs) Imagine 
imagine riding shotgun with Michael Jordan to go to the arena and just chit-chatting like your buddies. I mean, come on. No, um, Ahmad deserves, like, Ahmad, there's another one that's like, I mean, I remember watching NBA Inside stuff and all that, but it's like Ahmad Rashad needs to get his fair due. I mean, he is a fab, I think he's a three-time Pro Bowler, if I'm not mistaken. You know, yes. former NFL player, uh, gets the access to the guys. And the, the thing about Ahmad Rashad is, and it still applies to today, not to get off on a tangent here, but it's <clears throat> he he earned the trust of the guys. Mm-hmm. And if you had the trust of a guy like MJ, and like you said, being able to ride shotgun and, and do that whole bit, you know, that is a reporter's dream. It is that type of access, that type of trust. Hey, man, I'm one of you. Uh, you know, I'm not here to, you know, I'm not here to uh, turn up anything uh, necessarily like you can trust me. And that's the comfort level. When you can have a guy talk to you that doesn't come into it with preconceived notions and they're just talking, I mean, that's that's the dream. So Ahmad Rashad was, I mean, he was at the he was at the uh, top of his game, uh, no question at that point in time. But even when Jordan wanted to talk about his gambling issues, it wasn't Ahmad <laughs> Rashad asking him for an interview. It was Jordan saying, "I want yeah, I'm ready. a camera. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I want a camera. I want a microphone, and I want Ahmad." And that was it. That was to me. Yeah, I, and, and I want to, again, and I want to wear my sunglasses. Yeah, this is like this is like reporter biz geeking out that we're doing right now, because that is really I mean you say it and that's not a joke that that is really the that's the golden goose egg that we all want as reporters as professionals one day to have that kind of access. So the fact that Jordan felt so comfortable telling that kind of story and painting that picture of him, you know, with his issues and you know his gambling and stuff, that to me humanized him even more. So I, I completely concur with you on that. Johnny, uh, you know, a Delta native and grew up watching the bad boys. I'm sure you got to consume Cleveland sports too. You know, what kind of got you interested in becoming a sports media professional? You know, what kind of sparked that for you? Well, yeah, I'm actually drinking uh, out of my Detroit bad boys coffee mug right now. Uh, <laughs> I know you can't see it, but I, you just have to trust me on this one. Uh, Sure. Look, I, I think like a lot of us, um, I always say this, sports, you know it when it runs through your veins. So some people can take it or leave it. And not to, um, like, so I grew up with three sisters and a brother. We weren't necessarily a an overly gifted family as far as our athletic prowess. Okay, that's just being honest. Uh, but I would like to consider myself an athlete. But how good of an athlete? Well, I didn't crack the starting five on my high school team. Uh, and obviously, college coaches weren't calling. Uh, but I'd always thought I wanted a life in sports. I wanted to be an athlete. Uh, but obviously, for a lot of us, some of us peak early and some of us never peak. But uh, my whole my whole deal was I liked writing and I loved sports. And so my mom was ultimately, my mom's responsible for uh, for me actually attending Ohio University. I always wanted to go to Ohio State. Uh, that's what I always said I was going to do. I was accepted into Ohio State. Uh, but the journalism program, the E.W. Scripps School of Journalism at Ohio University, was uh, one of the best in the country. Still is. And anyway, my mom had encouraged me. Uh, she had said to me, I remember this. We were, we were sitting down. And my mom's like, you know, you have some parents can be overbearing and they kind of force you into certain things. And then you have other ways sort of like I'm not mad, but I'm disappointed, right? And that's almost like worse. 
you know. Mm, no, that is like, worse. No, that <laughs> right? is definitely worse. <laughs> so everybody's got their own way to parent. Well, my mom was pretty good about steering me, but not giving me mandates. So when she had said, why do you want to go to Ohio State aside from Saturday afternoons? And I paused just long enough because I knew I, I wanted to go to Ohio State because I wanted to party and I wanted to be a Buckeye and I wanted to, you know, pretty much that was it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so she said, will you please at least uh, go on a visit to Ohio University? I'll go with you. Because she had known that I liked to write. My mom's a creative writer uh, and a nurse, by the way, but uh, retired nurse. But So mm-hmm. I said, okay. And once I had gone down to the campus in Athens, it was, you know, it was blouses, like it was over. Because it was just such a beautiful campus. And I had known that I wanted to become involved with sports broadcasting. Since I wasn't going to be an athlete, I wanted to be a writer. Mm-hmm. And that's what I had gone down to do. And uh, and so I give a, uh, I give the credit to my mom, honestly, for, for encouraging me to do the visit. And then once I was there, it was over. I was sold. It was my, my quote-unquote recruiting visit. And uh, so I went down there, and then I started writing for the Post, which was our newspaper on campus. I was a stringer, getting paid like five dollars and fifteen cents a week or something. Uh, and then once I, had, once you get that first byline, you know what this is like. And I was mm-hmm. Jonathan Kane at the time. My God-given name is Jonathan, but I've gone by Johnny to everybody. Everybody calls me Johnny. My mom, my dad, everybody. But my God-given name is Jonathan. So my byline for my very first article in the Post was by Jonathan Kane. And, man, you want to talk about proud moments. You know what I'm saying? Like, when you get your first publication, yep. it was like, hey But once I had, I had begun writing and then once I got into the journalism program, you were able to dabble in print, online, uh, digital at the time, whatever, uh, radio and television. I really started to gravitate toward television, and that's when I had kind of shifted my focus to being in broadcast journalism as opposed to print. But I always feel like at my core I was a, a writer, and so – just like I said, when sports run through your veins, uh, my mom would let me stay up in high school to watch Monday Night Football, and all the other kids had to go to bed because I had told her I was, like, researching. And she bought it, you know what I mean? And obviously it paid off. But I, I always felt like if I was watching a game, I was learning and I was researching how to go about this, how to do this, how to do this. Uh, I wasn't necessarily calling games while I watched them, but it was like you were watching it uh, with a uh, – you were watching it differently than just mind-numbing television. It was like I'm watching this to try to learn how to go about it. So, anyway, that that's kind of where I got the, the jump to wanting to do it was, I mean, sports ran through my veins if there was ever a game on. A lot of us are like that. Uh, but there are some people where it's, if sports are on, it's like, okay, it's on. I'll just put it on as background noise. And then there are others of us where you watch it, and it's like, I'm all in. I'm watching this thing, you know. Yeah, and, and now you're covering the teams that you probably got to watch as a kid. Mm-hmm. Pretty surreal. Kind of wild, would, isn't it? <laughs> I would I would say so. Probably some of those Tigers teams, and even it could be the bad boys that you quote unquote studied for academia. And now you're now you're doing it for for work. You know, you mentioned that first byline. I, my first byline was on a website, Indians Baseball Insider. It jumped onto twenty four seven sports dot com, and it's since left that. But I wrote like a little featurey piece on Hall of Famers, and like 
I thought it was the coolest thing since bottled water and, you know, I shared it with everybody like, look at this. And I look back on that and I'm like, oh gosh, you know, at least from a style standpoint, but no, I totally get that. Yeah. Yeah. We appreciate your work here and I'm sure it's pretty cool that your family and your friends from here in Toledo get to see your work when, uh, whenever the Pistons or whenever FS Detroit shows the Tigers or whenever those yeah. Detroit pro sports get going. Yeah, that's been a blessing, honestly. You know, I, when I left, uh, so when I when I left school, I graduated from Ohio University in uh, '04, and then from there went to uh, Kentucky, then Kansas, then Missouri, then Detroit. And yeah, you could post certain clips or whatever that people would see. And I'm not saying I don't I don't go about my work every day thinking like, hey, I hope uh, somebody will watch it and think like, hey, cool, but when your family does get a chance to see it and then it kind of validates your decisions on how you got to that point, it, it does, it makes a total difference. So when I, when I moved here and my mom and dad could actually watch in real time, you know, not some clip that I had sent them. It was like, no, we're watching a game. Hey, there's my son. Uh, that was, that was as rewarding as, uh, as anything. And so, and it's been that way since it's, you know, when you pop on at a, you know, Loma Linda or whatever, you know, and they're in there, you know, watching, like, that's kind of cool. You know what I mean? So uh, it's been awesome. Well, before we get you out of here, where can we find your podcast? Well, right now we're working on distribution channels. Like I said, we just launched this sucker. So we're two weeks in. Uh, as of now, it's on SoundCloud, and uh, it's on Fox Sports Detroit, all our digital uh, platforms like, you know, Facebook, Twitter, uh, Instagram, where you can find the entire podcast. I'm trying to upload on my Twitter account like some uh, teaser clips, if you will, uh, some mm -hmm. smaller doses, because I know some people don't necessarily want to tune into a full 35, 40-minute podcast. Although when it's brilliant, why wouldn't you? But uh, but anyway, so I try to put like some smaller clips in there. But it's been cool. Uh, so right now it's on, yeah, just soundcloud.com. And uh, yeah, like you said, it's called Let It Fly, which obviously makes sense for Lion because he's such a uh, <laughs> such a sniper from the perimeter. But uh, it's been good. And, and, and I'll tell you what, uh, you know, there are a lot of people, and I've actually talked to some other friends of mine uh, and some contemporaries in the industry where anybody could do a podcast, if we're being honest. I mean, anybody could launch a podcast. It's sort of like you could, I mean, anybody could start a blog. I mean, there's a place for it to exist in, you know, in the atmosphere. Um, but what makes a good podcast and what, uh, what's going to draw in an audience. It's one thing to just do one, but if you really felt you had like a strong take on something or you wanted to get your ideas or opinions out, uh, what makes it compelling? And so that's what we're trying to figure out uh, as we go to make it a little bit more compelling. I think storytelling is big. Obviously having uh, fantastic guests is a big uh, coup. It's a cool thing, and to be able to do it with a current NBA player and me being mm -hmm. a current, you know, sideline reporter uh, makes it somewhat unique. And uh, so I think it's been great. And obviously, if, if being honest, uh, Isaiah didn't come on because I asked him to. You know what I mean? <laughs> he came on because Langston <laughs> asked him to. So sometimes you just got to defer and let uh, and let some other people take you know take the reins. So it's been good, man. It's been fun. Well, hey, the get is the get, and having Isaiah Thomas as guest number one certainly doesn't hurt. So. <laughs> I think I think right. I can I think I can speak for both you and Langston when I say you'll take that gladly. <laughs> you got it, man. Johnny, I probably kept you a little over the time that 
you may have or maybe that I promised you here, but I appreciate all of it. I really do. I appreciate you taking time to join me and to share some thoughts on all that's going on right now. Thank you so much for taking time with us. We really do appreciate it. Well, I appreciate it too, man. I appreciate your preparedness and um, I enjoy doing it. And, uh, and obviously, as I told you before, I enjoy, I enjoy the blade. So uh, if you ever need anything down the road, don't hesitate. You got it, Johnny. Thanks again. You got it. There you go. My thanks again goes to Johnny for taking time out of his schedule to join us. And I appreciate all of the insight that he gave from the sports world stopping due to the coronavirus all the way to the Last Dance documentary. We all have enjoyed it so far, it seems like. I really haven't heard a negative thing said about it. And for those of you that haven't seen it quite yet, I really do urge you to find a way to watch it. It has been nothing short of spectacular so far with how Michael Jordan's aura has been painted and with how the Chicago Bulls have been portrayed so far. There are 10 episodes total, and we have been through six so far. So a couple more weeks, and we'll be looking back on it. But for now, it's nice to have something to consume and something to discuss while at least live games are being stopped. And the sports world looks like it's trying to take those steps to get back to some form of normalcy. So we'll see how that develops over the next few weeks here. But for now, we'll enjoy what we have for now in the uh, documentary series. So thanks again to Johnny, and thanks to you, those of you at home, for listening in. If you enjoyed the show, you can find us on ToledoBlade.com. You can find us on Blade News Slide. You can find us anywhere that podcasts are available. Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, We're there every week on Thursdays. You can find us. Please remember to subscribe if you enjoyed this episode and share this episode. That's all we ask, and we always appreciate that. So, for Johnny Kane, my name is Corey Christen. Thank you for listening, and I'll talk to you next week right here on Glass City Game Time.